Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, we're here again with Dr. Pablo Rodriguez, part two. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you for joining us again today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to get together and just talk public health uh, with other physicians sometimes and just sort of see what's going on in the world, quite frankly. And, you know, one of the things about the world is it's very local for us. And so much has happened in Rhode Island during the pandemic, and you've seen it, quite frankly, up close and personal. And you've listened to so many people who've called into your radio show. You've seen so many people interact with you over social media. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw with the pandemic in some of the communities that you interacted with in Rhode Island? I'm thinking about Central Falls in particular, but there were some other communities that you really had some interaction. What did you see with the pandemic in Rhode Island? Well, what, what I've seen with the pandemic in Rhode Island is that, um, you know, at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, especially in and in the Latino community, uh, the level of misinformation was really, really high uh, because, you know, in Spanish, you get stuff from all over Latin America. Uh, and uh, it's almost like they concentrate here in the States. Um, the, the situation in Central Falls was one that immediately, you know, called, called to our attention. Um, and the vaccine subcommittee um, uh, for, for COVID was really, really very aware. And, and I'm so proud. I'm so proud of our, de de our Department of Health uh, because we were the only state in Alaska um, that, uh, that basically, you know, did not listen to the CDC and put high density communities at the center of the pandemic. Why? Because immediately we knew that the pandemic was um, caused by uh, close contact between people and people that live in high density communities, people that work in places like meatpacking plants and fish processing plants are the ones that are uh, are going to be most uh, at risk. And we saw that here in Rhode Island. Central Falls became the epicenter of the pandemic, uh, the, the most densely populated um, uh, city in, in, in Rhode Island. Meatpacking plant in Boralville, where people are working really right next to each other in an assembly line all day. And the same thing in a fish processing plant in Quonset Point. Um, so it, it, when, when you see these kinds of things, then you start thinking about, you know, what is it that, uh, that puts them at risk? And it becomes pretty obvious. It be, it's, it's the proximity, it's the fact that people are living in very close court conditions. They can't work from home. They use the same transportation. They pile on into a car or into a van to get to work. Um, there's nothing different about Latinos or African-Americans uh, that makes them more susceptible to, uh, to the virus is the fact that their living circumstances make perfect you know, fertile ground for this virus to, to grow. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. I would also like to thank you for joining us again for part two here. Uh, let's take a half step backwards. I think uh, we're talking about Central Falls here. There may be some people listening who, for example, have never been to Central Falls or may live outside of Rhode Island. Talk to us for a moment about, about Central Falls. How would you describe Central Falls to someone who's never visited? And how does it differ than, say, some of the surrounding communities, including Providence? Well, Central Falls has always been the place where immigrants come to in our state. Uh, why? Because the housing stock uh, is multifamily homes, uh, two, three, four families in one building. Um, uh, the rent is cheap. 
Um, and uh, we're talking about one square mile. I mean, it's a very, very small town, really. Um, but it, it is the most densely, one of the most densely populated uh, communities in the country. Uh, so, you know, it, it's very difficult for, for people to social distance uh, when there's a one bathroom in a house, you know, with 15, 20 people. Um, and um, most of the people in Central Falls are immigrant. Uh, most of them are Latino. And most of them are uh, service and factory workers, um, which, again, um, their, their circumstances at work put them at risk of infection with the virus um, and, and at risk for all sorts of, uh, of other uh, um, problems uh, with their health. You know, Dr. Rodriguez, one of the things, you know, I was thinking about is like, the Latinx population has been really profoundly affected by COVID in Rhode Island. And, and, and I know you're much more in touch with people. You've got the radio show. I've been on your radio show, by the way. Thank you for having me. Um, but it's great. But you've heard a lot from people uh, during the pandemic, you know, and can you share what you heard? I mean, I, I feel like you probably heard a lot of pain, uh, a lot of anxiety. I think you heard a lot of just wisdom too, by the way. And a lot of other encouraging words, but there, you just heard a lot. What did you hear? How did it affect our people of the Latinx, you know, area here in, in Rhode well, Island? You know, especially when I when I visited, uh, I, I went to the the meatpacking plant in Boroughville and the fish processing plant uh, in Quonset Point uh, to a group of individuals that still were not, you know, reaching the levels of vaccination that um, that we would like, which is a hundred percent in a place uh, that is such uh, at risk. And uh, what people really are constantly showing me is that they are afraid. They, there's fear. There's fear of, uh, of the vaccine. There's fear of new technology. Um, there's fear of, of COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, they are more afraid of the unknowns of science. Um, and, and, what, what's very interesting is that once you talk to them one-on-one on in close contact, um, as opposed to the distance of social media, uh, you actually get people to come around. You actually get people to feel better if you especially start talking about risks, uh, comparing them to the normal risk that we take every day. I tell people always, you know, when I give them the vaccine, you know, you took much more of a chance crossing the parking lot than the risk that this vaccine poses to your health. Um, you really took a lot of risk, you know, when you drove to the parking lot for, for an hour away because the risk of death from a car accident is that much higher. And when people start understanding, you know, the statistical, you know, elements that go into saying, you know, that a vaccine is safe or not, um, then they start feeling more and more comfortable um, and, and start signing up for the uh, uh, for the vaccine. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. And I wanted to pick up a, a strand that you've mentioned a couple times now, and that's about this uh, about these settings known as uh, meat packaging plants, uh, et cetera. So I've actually, I'm going to admit, I've actually never been to a meat uh, packaging plant. I know uh, from our work here at the Department of Health, we have seen some outbreaks in these settings, but walk us through what exactly is a, a meat packaging plant and why may folks who are uh, who work there be a little bit higher risk of outbreaks and, and COVID transmission? 
So in both in both of them, you have this this conveyor belt, uh, this this movement of material that is going in front of people that are sitting or standing right next to each other, cutting, preparing, assembling, packaging uh, all these uh, all these materials. Um, it's a line that's moving fast, so you have no time to to really social distance or to or to do anything other than the work that is in front uh, of you. Uh, the, the other thing about you know both places is that almost a hundred percent, if not a hundred percent, of the workers are Latinx, are Central American immigrants. Um, you know they don't speak English, um, and um, you know they have lower levels of education. So you know to try to explain risk, to try to explain uh, the science behind a vaccine you know, it becomes a challenge. And social media has become that explanation, so to speak, uh, you know, because they have access to it and on, in their phones and they get all this misinformation. And once the idea is in their head that the vaccine causes infertility, that the vaccine is magnetic, that the vaccine has microchips, that the vaccine, you know, that the COVID does not exist, that, you know, they're trying to, to dominate you, um, you know, those kinds of ideas, you know, really fall into fertile ground. Um, and uh, it, it's difficult sometimes to do that, to, to, to change people's minds through social media or through a radio show. Um, uh, but, but in a direct one-to-one, in, in a small group, it's amazing how the group dynamic is so much different than social media. Uh, you have two or three people that are really, you know, very negative. You also have two or three people that are very positive and that have the right information. And you create this human dynamic uh, where, where it's much more um, amenable to, for the truth to come out. Uh, once you see that other people feel, you know, different than you and they're your colleagues and they're your peers, you know, you feel, you feel like, well, maybe I should, Look at this, you know, more, more uh, realistically, and start ignoring those people that I don't know on social media. You know, we spent a year basically not interacting with each other in person. You know, we, we're kind of outdoor cats now. We're becoming indoor cats again. But one of the things about interacting with people is, I know I'm different when I'm interacting with people in the same room as me, and and I think there's sort of this social media gives people this false sense of courage. They start saying these things that are just quite frankly sometimes just quite frankly outlandish. One of these I want to get back to though, is, and I, I want to get back to the illustration you gave in a meatpacking plant. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about social determinants of health, you know, and then quite frankly, you hit on a lot of these social determinants of health. I remember I was talking to a healthcare provider who earlier was saying, you know, why the Latinx population is so much more disease. And he was saying, well, they're just not wearing masks. I said, you know, that's not it. It's not that people aren't wearing masks. It was other things like they li- you know, people live in high density communities. They're living too many people in the same house, maybe. Well, they're just close together. I'm not sure it's too many people, just close together. But if you're working in a place where you're all close together, if you have to go to work in person as opposed to working remotely, these are all adverse social determinants of health to some degree when it comes to dealing with a pandemic, you know? And by the way, nothing adverse about living with a lot of people in the same home. It's beautiful to have a great big family. But when you talk about spreading a pandemic, that puts you at higher risk. And part of what I'm getting at is when we talk about social determinants of health, sometimes things like what your house looks like, how many bathrooms you have, where you go to work, 
what your level of education was really creates advantages or disadvantages for you. You know, one of the examples I'll give is, you know, for my family, we had a nice big home with many bathrooms, multiple cars. We had computers in our home. I could pick up groceries at the store. I could work from home. What I explained to my adult children was we had advantageous social determinants of health. So the fact that none of us got COVID, I'm very thankful for, but we were set up to succeed. Another family who had the opposite situation isn't really set to succeed. You saw a lot of that during the pandemic. Can you share some wisdom of what you saw? Yeah, so so I'll give you a good example of this. You know, people living in a multiple tenant uh, family in um, uh, a family home in Central Falls. So you have, you know, 15 people living in one room. They, half of them are children, four generations, <laughs> typically. Uh, so you have elderly people and newborns, you know, living in the same, you know, environment. So you have people that have to go to work. Uh, they get, they pile up into a car because, you know, they don't have a single car for every person, you know. So you, you anybody that has a car is going to have four or five other people that are going to drive to the meatpacking plant or to the, uh, or to the fish processing plant. So then you, the, the commute is risk. Once you get to work, you're sitting next to hundreds of people, one after the other, one after the other. So you are at risk 24-7 when you have an environment that does not allow you for do risk mitigation, like the people that ended up just staying at home, you know, not interacting with anybody, working from home. And when you are poor, when you are the only source of income in the household, you are not going to stop working because you're not going to get any money. You are not going to even get tested because you don't want to know that you're positive because that will remove you from work. So it creates a real you know, uh, snowball of risk that at the end it has created you know, this pandemic uh, that has affected primarily those communities that share those kinds of living conditions. Yeah, thank you for that. I think uh, in thinking about back in April, May of 2020, you know, I think it, one of the themes that started to emerge uh, early on in the pandemic was this concept of disparities, and especially among African-American, Black, and Hispanic, Latinx. And I think for those of us in public health, unfortunately, many of us were not surprised. And I think, as you have uh, so eloquently described, a lot of the factors, structural factors that contribute to this. But talk to us a little bit, you know, in your experience and based on uh, uh, your insights, what can we do in general to improve public health, the health in general for the Hispanic Latinx community, thinking about Central Falls, thinking about other areas, perhaps in Rhode Island, perhaps elsewhere across the U.S. What, how, how do we start to get our hands around this and, and, and do it better? Thank you for the question, because this is one of my pet peeves uh, that I've been pushing at the Rhode Island Foundation and, and a number of, of, of committees that I'm involved with in philanthropy. Um, I believe that health literacy is at the center of it all. I believe that if we give people the tools and the right information to be able to protect themselves, they will do so. Um, and um, so, so what we have is a population uh, that is not limited to, to, to the Latinx community. I mean, health literacy is a problem, you know, a, a wide problem in our population, but it's specifically in this population because it also involves language. 
you know, you know, when, when English is not your language, I mean, when Spanish is your first language, it's very, very difficult to capture those kinds of uh, important health messages uh, and uh, when, when they are delivered to you in English. So health literacy to me is at the center of it all. And health literacy requires us as, as, as a society to develop this cadre of people that can deliver that information because doctors can do that. You know, that is not, you know, you know something that doctors can do. It has to be community people. Uh, and um, what, what I've seen and what I see the health department doing now is putting this emphasis on community health workers, which are people from the community that uh, are trusted uh, and that can go door to door, that can really sit down with people and, and interact in a more informal and, and relaxed way where people don't feel like they are ignorant or that, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask a question of the doctor because they're going to think that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm stupid. I get, I used to get patients telling me that, you know, when I would explain a very difficult treatment plan and I would say, do you have any questions? Oh, no, I have no questions. I'm like, you have no questions because you're afraid of asking questions. You have to have questions because this is very complex. And I try to just basically say, you know, uh, asking questions is okay. You know, you're not bothering me uh, by asking questions. And that, you know, all those kinds of issues of personal interactions uh, in terms of delivering messages, especially, you know, uh, public health messages are really, really important. And that's why community health workers, in my opinion, trying to improve the health literacy of the entire community uh, is one of the best things that we can do and one of the best investments that we can make uh, in public health. Yeah, Dr. Rodriguez, I completely agree. I think health literacy is really an important, important concept. You know, one of the things I remember when I worked on the Navajo Reservation in Chinle, Arizona, you know, one of the things I noticed was the health literacy on the reservation was extremely high. You know, I, I, I never had patients coming in asking for antibiotics. I never had patients who had questions or really concerns about vaccines. And, and it really was because the public health service had been there for over 50 years. So he'd done a lot of the groundwork for me, but there was a lot of emphasis on this, uh, on the Navajo reservation about health literacy. It really was a highly educated community. People cared about their health. There was a lot of work on preventing diabetes, a lot of work on exercise. It was just health literacy. Health literacy was so important. And I think, you know, one of the things that I really hear you talking about, is like, you know, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that there's a reason why people have mistrust. I mean, quite frankly, there's a reason why populations just don't trust what government says. And quite frankly, you know, I think we need to talk about that. Part of the reason the pandemic response in the United States has been what it's been is just there's a lot of mistrust and, and I, there's a basis for that mistrust. It's not unreasonable. What are your thoughts on, on dealing with people's mistrust? And, and some of it is improving health literacy, but there's other ideas, too, isn't there? Yeah, no, you, you, you have to acknowledge the mistrust. I mean, you have to, you know, uh, you know, tell people, you know, I, I understand, you know, why you feel this way. You know, you have good reason to believe this way. We cannot just basically shun them and say, well, they're just ignorant. They're not going, they're never going to change. They will change, but you have to acknowledge their pain. You have to acknowledge, you know, their own experience with the healthcare system, which for many has been problematic. Um, and, um, and try to gain their trust. Uh, because if you don't gain their trust, you know, it doesn't matter how much data, how much information you provide, that information is going to come in one ear and not the other. They're going to listen to the neighbor. They're going to listen to the friend. They're going to listen to the hairdresser. So um, it's important to gain their trust. And 
again, I think that community health workers, you know, are, are a really important tool in helping develop that trust uh, uh, about the healthcare system. Uh, because once you know how to navigate the system, when, when somebody is treating you the wrong way, when somebody's not doing the right thing for you, you know it right away. And you are able to advocate for yourself. When you are ignorant of what's going on, um, you know, you become a victim. Uh, and even if the outcome would have been the same, the feelings of the patient and the individual are very different. You know, when you are aware of what's going on, rather than when you are not aware uh, of what's going on. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Rodriguez, for that. And uh, totally agree with you. Uh, definitely, you know, incredible challenges. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I think as we wind down here, one last question for you. Uh, Tell us, just as we end here, any thoughts on how the pandemic has affected you personally that you'd be willing to share? I think all of us have had uh, different experiences, challenges, stories. Uh, anything you'd like to share as we wrap up here? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, personally, my, my, biggest, uh, my, my biggest problem has been the, the lack of respect that I have experienced online uh, when I'm just trying to provide information, you know, uh, to, to the people that are, you know, distributing wrong information. Uh, I, I always, I, I always had such admiration for my patients. And I guess, I guess, you know, once you start getting insulted every day, it kind of gets to you. And um, I had to actually just um, uh, stop um, social media interactions for, uh, for a period in order to just gain my mental health because I was becoming very depressed. I was becoming very, I was feeling very ineffective um, uh, because I, I, I could not convince people uh, with, with, with the right information. And I think that uh, that has been the biggest, um, uh, the biggest problem for me, um, but I continue. And um, you know, now I, I don't take it in. Uh, I just see where people are coming from and try to just help them as much as I can, but sometimes can't. Yeah, Dr. Rodriguez, I think that's a fine note to end on. I mean, quite frankly, it's been fun to have you for this two-part series we did with you. I want to thank you so much for doing it. You know, our first episode, we kind of went through the social media and we ended up with social determinants of health here. And I, I think in some ways, it's a little bit of an interesting story about the pandemic because in social media, we see people sharing some great ideas and yet some not so great ideas. One of the things we see about social determinants of health is some people were set up to succeed during the pandemic and some people were just set up to fail during the pandemic. And it really speaks to a larger issue, I think, is that we have a lot of work to do in bringing our culture together. Um, if there's one thing I think about unifying our two episodes, it's just our culture needs to find a way to live together and live together where they're fairly and justly. And I think that's important. But, you know, I can't thank you enough for joining us. We always like to end our episode with a final word from Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan, what word of wisdom do you have for us today? So thank you again, Dr. Rodriguez. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, in closing, I do want to leave folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, an optimistic quote, live in the sunshine, swim the sea, drink the wild air. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, medical director, Redon Department of Health. Have a good and keep up the great. Woo. There we go. Season two is off and running. Way to go. All right.